You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Happy 100th episode. Yes, this is the show's 100th episode, and I can't think of any better story to tell to commemorate the occasion than the voyage of the James Caird. Anyhow, I just have to say thank you to everyone who has come along on this ride. I started this podcast about five years ago as nothing more than a fun way to talk about a subject that I really got a kick out of. To be honest, other than the growth of the show's fan base, nothing much has really changed about the podcast since the first episode on Ferdinand Magellan. Yes, the audio is better, and I think I'm a more confident narrator, and I produce more content compared to the early years, but it's still just me. I am the sole researcher, writer, narrator, producer, publisher, and marketer of the Explorers podcast. So I'm sort of proud that the show routinely sits in the top 100 or so history programs on the Apple Podcast charts, right next to the shows from the large media companies and other independent shows. That we've gotten here is really unexpected and gratifying. The good thing about the show is that there are a lot of explorers we haven't covered, lots of them. So let's hope that we can do this for a long time. In all of this, I want to say thanks to everyone. That you simply want to listen to me tell these stories is an honor. And to those who have supported the show in other ways, I am still humbled and amazed at your generosity and enthusiasm. And I have to say thanks to everyone who has taken the time to write me via the website, Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, or wherever. I get some great stories and wonderful messages. One listener thanked me for helping with his insomnia. He said my voice was the best thing to help him sleep in a decade. I'm not sure if that's a compliment, but I'll take it. I've had people send me photos of their trip as they've recreated a specific explorer's steps. I had one guy listen to the entire series on a 1,000-mile walk across the United States. I've had people tell me that they've learned more about history listening to the show than a dozen years in school. And I've had people write to me and say how they bonded with their kids through listening to the show on road trips or at bedtime. That's just the surface of the stuff that people have shared. The number of photos I've been sent and simple thank yous are amazing and gratifying. So that is it for me reminiscing about the show. I'll just say, again, thanks to all of you. This is one of the most enjoyable things I have ever done, and I hope to be with you a lot longer. With that, on to part nine in our series on Ernest Shackleton. Last time, we left the men of Endurance stranded on Elephant Island, about 125 miles, or 200 kilometers, north of the Antarctic Peninsula. It was April of 1916, and they were thrilled to be on solid land after nearly 500 days. Now, the men had food and water on this desolate island, but the problem was that the area was not a place whaling ships usually ventured. Thus, Sir Ernest Shackleton decided that he would take one of the boats, the James Caird, and make a go for South Georgia Island, about 800 miles, or 1,300 kilometers, to the northeast. This was the same place the Endurance had departed from in December of 1914. There were closer locations, such as South America's Cape Horn or the Falkland Islands, but the winds and currents went directly from Elephant Island to the northeast and South Georgia Island, making it the obvious destination. For the voyage, Shackleton asked for volunteers, and from those men, he selected five to make up his crew. This included Frank Worsley, Endurance's captain. Worsley was an outstanding navigator and would be critical to the success of the voyage. The next man was Tom Crean, the iron-willed Irish sailor. Crean did not take well to sitting around and waiting for others, and he begged Shackleton to include him amongst the crew. The carpenter, Harry McNish, was also included, as his skills might be needed on the voyage. Plus, Shackleton didn't want him sitting around and brooding and complaining on Elephant Island. That sort of thing would only cause problems. 
The final two men were John Vincent and Timothy McCarthy. Both were strong and accomplished seamen, and amongst the healthiest of those who volunteered. Shackleton would not take either of the expedition's doctors. He felt their services were best rendered to the men on the island, many of whom were sick and injured. As for the voyage, Shackleton thought it could be accomplished in three to four weeks, assuming things went well. The goal was to depart as soon as possible. The quicker the boat could get to South Georgia Island, the quicker a ship could be sent to rescue the men. And this was really important because winter was only eight weeks away. Everyone could see ice flows out in the ocean, and that would only increase as the temperature dropped. There was a very real possibility that the island would be engulfed by ice at some point, which would make rescuing them a difficult and dangerous proposition. And thus the men of Endurance went about setting up their camp and preparing the James Caird for her voyage across the ocean. The James Caird was a 22.5-foot longboat, or about 7 meters. She was 7 feet wide, or 2 meters. Harry McNish, the carpenter, had already raised the sides of the boat by nearly a foot with timber from Endurance, but he would add another 10 inches at this time. Higher sides kept out water and better protected the men. Also for their upcoming voyage, McNish took planking from another of the boats and, along with some canvas, built a makeshift deck over the James Caird. The entire boat was covered in deck except for a 4 by 2 foot section. McNish was quite ingenious in putting it all together. He sealed things up with a concoction of lamp wick, oil paints from George Marston, the expedition's artist, and even seal's blood. After that, the James Caird was fitted with three sails, using masts from the other boats. Also, a ton of ballast would be loaded on board to help prevent it from capsizing in the rough open waters. The ballast consisted of 100-pound canvas bags filled with rocks collected from the island. For drinking water, two 18-gallon casks were filled with melted glacier water. Shackleton noted that it had a bit of a briny taste, but it would suffice for the voyage. By the way, while they were doing all of this, conditions were miserable on Elephant Island. The winds were so brutal, the men would find their faces cut and bruised from flying ice and stones. For the voyage, the expedition would take four weeks of sledging rations, plus some biscuits and powdered milk. There would be two of the small Primus stoves, in case one failed, as well as fuel. This would allow the men to make hot food and drinks. Some other items brought included six reindeer sleeping bags, socks, mittens, a pair of binoculars, a prismatic compass, a medicine kit, a sea anchor, some fishing line, candles, matches, plus a shotgun and ammunition. There would also be four oars, a baler, and a pump. For navigational purposes, there was a sextant, plus charts and tables, all put away in a watertight box. There was also a chronometer, which was critical to the boat's navigation. The expedition had started with 24 of them, but this was the last one remaining. Frank Worsley was so concerned about it getting lost or damaged, he hung it around his neck for safekeeping. As for Shackleton, he would huddle with key individuals to lay out how to handle things in his absence, plus how to move forward if he didn't return. He signed a document directing Frank Hurley, the expedition's photographer, to handle media affairs related to the expedition, such as lectures and film and photo rights, should he not return. The letter asked Frank Wilde, Thomas Ord Lees, and Hurley to write the official account of the expedition. Shackleton would then give Frank Wilde a letter transferring command over to him. Shackleton, no doubt, wished to have Wilde on the card, but he needed a strong and respected man to stay on Elephant Island and Wilde was not the kind of man to turn down a request from the boss. Before departing, the two men would spend hours discussing the issues, big and small, that lay ahead. This included things as simple as how to deal with the distribution of tobacco, to what to do if Shackleton did not return. For the latter question, Shackleton said that if he was not back by next spring, Wilde was to take one of the remaining boats and make a go for Deception Island, about 200 miles to the southwest of Elephant Island. The island was not far from King George Island and was frequented by whalers. Trying to sail a boat across the open waters to Deception Island against the prevailing currents and winds was viewed as a losing proposition. But if it came to that, well, that was the plan. So, due to bad weather, the men would wait impatiently to set sail. No one was more anxious to get moving than Shackleton. He hated to do nothing, and as he looked out on the horizon, the growing line of pack ice became more worrisome by the day. He needed to get moving before the ice hemmed him in. I want to note that Shackleton had enormous misgivings about what he was about to do. Privately, he second-guessed the destination of South Georgia Island, but even more so, he couldn't shake the feeling that he was abandoning his men. It didn't matter that the voyage he was about to undertake was far more dangerous than waiting on Elephant Island, and everyone told him that, but he hated the idea of leaving anyone behind. He would tell Frank Worsley, quote, If anything happens to me while these fellows are waiting for me, I shall feel like a murderer, end quote. But in the end, it was Shackleton's nature to lead the charge. 
He was not the kind of guy who asked others to accomplish the most difficult tasks. The idea of him just sitting on Elephant Island while Worsley or Wilde or whomever led the voyage to South Georgia was something Shackleton couldn't stomach. The inaction would kill him. Now, I want to stress that what Shackleton and the others were going to attempt was, wildly, dangerous. Frank Worsley would later write about what lay ahead, saying, quote, We knew it would be the hardest thing we'd ever undertaken, for the Antarctic winter had set in, and we were about to cross one of the worst seas in the world. End quote. When I think of the odds of success, I think of playing Dungeons and Dragons. If you have ever played, you'll understand what I'm about to describe. But if you haven't, I think you'll still get it. When you play Dungeons and Dragons, or many other fantasy role-playing games, you have a 20-sided dice. It has 20 sides, numbered 1 to 20. It is called a D20. Pretty simple. In the course of a game, the person running it all, the Dungeon Master, or DM, will assign challenges to your player, and you will need to roll that 20-sided dice to determine if you succeed or not. Some of these challenges can be pretty simple, such as trying to swing your sword at a monster, or saying to the Dungeon Master, I would like to climb this wall that blocks our path. The DM will then assign a number from 1 to 20 and say, okay, you need to roll an 8, or whatever number, to successfully climb the wall. The player would then have to roll his or her 20-sided dice. If they rolled an 8 or better, they successfully climbed the wall. Well, the more difficult the task or challenge, the worse the odds. And when the odds get really, really bad, it's because whatever is before you is nearly impossible. It's like facing a huge dragon or an evil demon, the big bad monster at the end of a long campaign, that sort of thing. You know the situation is really bleak when the dungeon master determines the odds and says, you need to roll a 20 to succeed. That's the only way to do it, a 1 in 20, and you only get one roll of the dice. That's a 5% chance to win. Anything else, you die. To me, that's what Shackleton was facing, a 1 in 20 chance. On April 24, 1916, the bad weather that had plagued the men eased. It was time to head out. Breakfast that morning would be biscuits and jam. All around, the conversation was stilted and awkward, as the men knew that they might not ever see each other again. There were half-hearted jokes, such as the men telling Tom Crean to leave some of the women for them, that sort of thing. After McNish put some finishing touches on the James Carrot, it was time to go. Much of the boat's weight, including the ballast, had actually been loaded onto the Stancombe wheels. The idea was to lighten the Carrot so it could be launched. Once it was a little ways out into the ocean, the ballast and other gear would be transferred from the Stancombe wheels to the Carrot. Shackleton would share a final cigarette with Frank Wilde, offering the latter some last-minute advice. He would then walk amongst the men, shaking hands with them and exchanging a few words. Shackleton did not leave any letter for his wife or children, although in a note to Frank Wilde, he said that if he did not return, Wilde should, quote, convey my love to my people and say I tried my best, end quote. All hands were mustered for the task of launching the boat, but the James Caird wasn't budging. It was still too heavy and embedded in the volcanic grid of the beach. The men tried to rock the boat and pry it upwards. Nothing. Shackleton next ordered everyone out of the boat but himself. It was then that a very large wave swept up over the beach, putting the James Caird afloat. The boat was pushed further out to sea, and the rest of the crew jumped on board. And right away, things did not go well. Remember, the boat didn't have any ballast in it yet, and the deck planking made her top-heavy. Thus, the boat rolled as she was pushed out into the water, tossing John Vincent and Harry McNish into the surf. The two would get back on board, and eventually, the men would get a handle on the carrot and move further out into the water. Once the boat got past the reefs, the Stancombe Wills was brought alongside, and the ballast was transferred over, as well as the two casks of water. The transfer would take some time that morning, as it would take two trips to finish the task. When all was done, the crews of the two boats shook hands. It was 12.30 p.m., and Shackleton was eager to be underway. As the James Caird moved out to sea, her sails were raised, eliciting three cheers from the men on shore. With Frank Worsley at the helm, Shackleton ordered the boat directly north to avoid the troublesome-looking ice flows to the east. As a note, the next day the ice pack closed in around the island. If they had waited just one more day to depart, Shackleton and the James Caird would likely have been trapped on Elephant Island. But they did not wait, and thus the voyage of the James Caird was underway. It was a small boat against some of the most dangerous waters in the world. Ernest Shackleton and his team had done some amazing things to get to this point, but it was nothing compared to what lay ahead. For that next challenge, the boss needed to roll a 20. So, while the James Caird inched its way out into the southern ocean, I want to spend some time with the 22 men on Elephant Island, now under the command of Frank Wilde. With Shackleton gone, all the men could do now was wait. What sort of time frame were they looking at? Well, at a minimum, a month, but probably more like six to eight weeks 
assuming Shackleton even made it to civilization. That uncertainty ate at the men more than anything. On the plus side, the island offered a food source via a nearby penguin colony and the occasional seal. Also, there was fresh water, courtesy of a glacier. On the other hand, the island was a desolate and inhospitable place. It was nothing but rocks and ice and snow and wet. The ground was always wet and soggy, and even worse, it was covered in penguin guano, which, as you can imagine, made everything reek. And we cannot forget the weather. It was terrible. Winds could hurl around bits of ice and even rocks. One time a large cooking pot was carried away in a storm. Another time one of the men placed two large stones, the size of a man's head, on a parka. The stones got pushed aside by the wind, and the parka was swept into oblivion. The men quickly came to understand why no ships came to Elephant Island. The winds and the reefs and the ice would endanger any vessel that dared to get near the coast. The crew, as you can imagine, quickly came to hate the island. There was nothing redeeming about the place. For shelter, the men found some rocks suitable for making a low wall and set the two boats upturned on top. They covered the whole thing with canvas and used clothing or whatever was available to seal the cracks and holes to keep out the wind and water. Candles were made so the men could read at night. Also, a chimney was constructed so the cooking could be done in the improvised hut. This gave them a reasonably secure shelter. However, it was cramped and crowded, especially at night or when all the men were packed inside due to a storm or howling winds. Nothing drove the men more crazy than having someone having to leave or enter the hut during a raging storm as it let in the wind and rain and snow. And the winds could force the smoke from the stove back down the chimney and into the hut, which sent the men scrambling outside. Now, as for the men, there was no question many were struggling physically and mentally. The weeks and months of battling to reach Elephant Island had sapped them of so much. Lewis Rickinson, Endurance's engineer, had suffered a mild heart attack once they had landed on Elephant Island. This incapacitated him. Pierce Blackborough was hobbled badly due to frostbitten toes and gangrene had set in. Endurance's navigator, Hubert Hudson, was suffering from a large abscess on his buttocks. It was terribly painful, and he could barely move because of it. This would lead Hudson to suffer from severe depression, which essentially kept him bedridden much of the time. Other men would become so physically and mentally drained, they would just crawl into their sleeping bags and not get out. And we cannot forget how exhausted the men were. Wilde noted the problem when they built their shelter. They had to haul the rocks used to build the walls about 450 feet or 135 meters. It was a difficult task, but it should not have taken that long. But it did. The men had just lost so much of their strength and will. The week after the departure of Shackleton and the James Caird was miserable as the wind in the snow was unrelenting. And then, finally, the sun would come out. And not just for a few hours or a day, but for three straight days. This was a huge boost to the men's morale. They laid out their sleeping bags and clothing so they would dry. And just getting out of the hut and walking in the open did them wonders. In all of this, Wilde kept a constant lookout, scanning the horizon for any sign of a ship. One curious decision by Wilde was to not stockpile more fresh meat while possible. Thomas Ordlees, the quartermaster, was upset by the decision, but Wilde felt that it would be defeatist, and in doing so, it would crush the men's morale. This decision may have been influenced by Shackleton, who had done the exact same thing on the Weddell Sea earlier this year. No one really talked about Shackleton and the James Caird. The subject was taboo. Had they been lost? Frank Wilde was quick to offer excuses as to why they had not returned, but with each passing day, those excuses sounded more and more wishful rather than realistic. No matter, no one dared to suggest the worst option, that the Caird was lost and no one was on their way to rescue them. The voice that would crush the men. By late May, the days were getting darker and darker. Winter was coming. And even more ominous was the buildup of ice around Elephant Island. It got thicker each day. Everyone could see that no normal ship could get near the island. On May 25th, Frank Hurley would write in his journal, quote, Our wintry environment embodies the most inhospitable and desolate imaginable. All are resigned now and fully anticipate wintering. End quote. And so the men could only wait, resigned to spending the winter on Elephant Island. There were surprisingly few real confrontations and arguments amongst the men during all of this. Perhaps they were just too tired and despondent for such things. Still, the mood in the camp frequently mirrored the weather. If everyone was trapped inside while the winds howled around them and the temperature dropped, the crew's mood would darken as the increasing cold meant the ice pack around the island would only thicken. During one tough stretch, Lionel Greenstreet, one of Endurance's officers, wrote in his diary, quote, Everyone spent their day rotting in their bags with blubber and tobacco smoke. So passes another goddamn rotten day. 
End quote. Now, despite all of this, the men did not give up. Leonard Hussey still had his banjo to entertain his comrades, and the men read and told stories. Interestingly, one of the favorite pastimes of the crew was to talk about food. They discussed it constantly. It was such a common subject, a poll was conducted to see which foods the men missed most. The result was sweets, pudding, dumpling, tarts, cream, syrup, you get the idea. Charles Green, the cook, had been a pastry chef, and the men would quiz him for hours about the intricacies of creating the most delectable baked goods. As May gave way to June, one concern that arose was the condition of Pierce Blackborough. The young man's frostbitten toes had turned gangrenous. The hope had been that he could manage the condition until rescued, but by mid-June, things could not wait. On June 15th, doctors Alexander Macklin and James McElroy would amputate Blackborough's toes. Chloroform was the only available anesthetic. Otherwise, the hut was cleared and the room's temperature was raised as much as possible. The resulting operation would take just under an hour, and everything went well, save for the fact that Blackborough no longer had any toes. But he was alive and would suffer no ill effects from the operation. Late June would bring the official arrival of winter, which would offer a chance for the men to have a bit of a celebration, but they all knew that things were bleak. It had been two months since the departure of the James Caird, and the chances of being rescued diminished each day. As a note, the ice around Elephant Island was getting thicker. However, it would break up at times, offering some hope to the men. This wasn't like the ice of the Weddell Sea, where the pack was pressed together against the Antarctic continent. The ice pack around the island was ever-changing, and its status was something everyone took a great interest in. June would turn to July and then to August. Still no ship arrived. Food was running low. Tobacco was also in short supply. Each man had been given their own personal stash, and those who had saved some were now under constant pressure to make some sort of bargain for a pipe or a half-pipe full of leaf. Heck, they were striking deals in exchange for a puff or two. The men got so desperate, they started making their own alternatives. Some of the men took the insulation of the polar boots, called sengrass, which consisted of grass-like leaves, and mixed it with sawdust, herbs, coffee, and tea, and made a tobacco substitute, which probably only induced headaches. No matter, the men were so desperate for a fix, and this was the best option. Now, with the arrival of August, the men now began to openly talk about a possible run in the open sea for Deception Island to the southwest. And while Deception Island was only a couple of hundred miles away, it was right into the teeth of very strong prevailing winds and currents. Plus, there was no mast for the boat, and just five working oars. Such a voyage would be done only as a last resort. On Elephant Island, the conditions were, frankly, terrible. Water started filtering up through the rocks below them and into the hut. It was a natural phenomenon, but combine it with penguin guano, it made everything wet and foul-smelling. Wild had the men dig a hole in the lowest part of the floor as a place for the water to gather. They would have to bail it on a regular basis. One night they bailed 50 gallons of water out of it. By the middle of August, the food supply was getting thin and seaweed was added to the menu. The men now openly acknowledged that if no one had come to rescue them by now, there was a good chance that Shackleton had never made it to South Georgia. Thomas Ordlees would write, quote, There is no good reason in deceiving ourselves any longer. End quote. Frank Wilde, however, still had faith in the boss, even if others did not. If no help came in the next few weeks, well, then he would start thinking about a last-ditch effort to sail to Deception Island. And this is where we will leave the men on Elephant Island for today. They had survived the worst part of winter, but things were getting dicey. Food and morale were low and the odds of being rescued diminished with each day. And so, with August 1916 coming to a close on Elephant Island, let us jump back to April 24, 1916, the day Shackleton and his five-man crew set sail aboard the James Caird. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Ernest Shackleton, Frank Worsley, Tom Crean, Harry McNish, John Vincent, and Timothy McCarthy set off into the Southern Ocean in the early afternoon on April 24, 1916. They watched Elephant Island grow small in their wake as they headed north, skirting the ice pack that threatened them to the east. Still, there was plenty of ice in their path, and they would eventually reach a collection of old flows in mid-afternoon. The ice around them was immensely dangerous. These were big, jagged flows and bergs, many dwarfing the boat. A strong wind could easily catch the sails and pull them into the ice. In fact, the James Caird did bump into ice several times, and thus Shackleton abandoned the sails, as it was just too risky. Now it was just the oars, a slow but immensely safer option. Even as the light began to fade around 4 p.m., the little boat would pick its way through the ice, before finally emerging into the open sea. Shackleton ordered the sails raised. The winds were strong but favorable. Shackleton kept the boat going in a northerly heading to get as far away from the ice as possible. He and Worsley would take the first shift that night, the others crawling under the deck to try and get some sleep. The James Caird thus sailed north, praying that they would not encounter any ice in the dark. This is something we cannot forget about, the dark. The region was usually covered in clouds, thus the boat and their crew were alone in the pitch blackness of the ocean. It would have been an unsettling experience. In the darkness, Shackleton talked to Worsley, again expressing his doubts about all of this. Was South Georgia Island the best option? Was he right to leave the men on Elephant Island? Worsley answered yes and yes to the questions. Honestly, Shackleton was nearly overwhelmed, mentally and physically, and what was ahead of them was so unpredictable and daunting. Author Alfred Lansing would say this at the moment, quote, He, meaning Shackleton, now faced an adversary so formidable that his own strength was nothing in comparison, and he did not enjoy being in a position where boldness and determination count for almost nothing, and in which victory is only measured in survival, end quote. On the ocean, willpower and determination alone were not enough to overcome the challenges ahead of them. This helplessness gnawed at Shackleton. The men of the James Caird would eventually set up a rotation system, allowing the boat to always be moving toward their destination, so long as the weather cooperated. They would operate in teams of three, with four-hour shifts. As we have seen, Shackleton loved to set up these kinds of routines. On a typical shift, one man would be at the helm, another would watch the sails, and the third would bail water or help out wherever needed. As a note, waves and spray made bailing a full-time affair. Sometimes water came into the boat in bucketfuls. The men would usually have to pump the water every hour or two, sometimes more. The other three men would try to eat and sleep under the deck. Now, under the deck it was relatively dry, but let's remember, there were a ton of bricks in the bottom of the boat. This meant it was terribly uncomfortable. As there were six sleeping bags, each man could use one sleeping bag as a mattress and crawl into his own bag but the men were still laying on a bunch of rocks, not exactly the most comfortable situation. It was even more annoying when the men were forced to shift around the ballast to counter the winds or currents. It was like, great, crawl into a cramped space and move around a bunch of hundred-pound bags of rocks. I'm sure that was fun. Under the deck, the space was seven feet wide and five feet high at the most. However, we have to remember there were a bunch of rocks as well, plus crates full of food and supplies and gear. At best, the men could manage to squat down into a low crouch, and this was usually only done when meals were cooked on the stove. For the most part, the men barely had enough space to crawl on their hands and knees and sleep. Still, everyone made do. Food, by the way, was usually prepared by Tom Crean. Meals were mostly sledging rations, which were these compressed lumps, or cakes, made up of beef protein, lard, oatmeal, and sugar. Yum. There was another item called a nut food, which was described as a nutty, nougaty thing. Biscuits, hot tea, coffee, and milk rounded out the diet. The men, by the way, were dressed for the Antarctic, not the ocean. They wore wool underwear and trousers, thick sweaters, and gabardine overalls, along with double-layered woolen caps and helmets. 
Each man had on two pairs of socks and ankle-high reindeer skin boots. It was the best they had, but as I said, it was made for the dry Antarctic, not the wet of the ocean. The constantly wet clothing scratched at the men's skins, leaving it painfully raw. So the first couple of days that James cared would make good progress, covering 147 miles, or 237 kilometers, directly north. They left the ice behind them, which was a big deal, although it was still a possible threat. Now there were rolling seas, high waves, and 50 mile per hour, or 80 kilometer per hour, winds. The Caird, due to the ton of ballast, was difficult to steer, producing what was described as a wicked motion, but it was manageable. The key to all of this was Frank Worsley's navigation. He had to keep them on course to South Georgia Island. If he messed up, even a little, it might push the boat too far north or south. If they sailed past the island, they would never be able to get back to it. All they would have at that point was 3,000 miles of open ocean ahead of them, which meant their doom. So, after two days, Shackleton would change course to the northeast, toward South Georgia. It was here that the James Caird approached the 60th parallel, a.k.a. the Screaming Sixties, as it was called by sailors. This meant that they were entering the eastern reaches of the Drake Passage. The Drake Passage is a body of water between South America's Cape Horn and the South Shetland Islands, about 100 miles north of the Antarctic Peninsula. The South Shetland Islands include Elephant Island, which is on the eastern edge of the island chain. This is a huge area of persistent low pressure. From what I've read about it, it sort of sucks high pressure from the north, and the result is nearly ceaseless gale force winds and waves called Cape Horn Rollers, or Greybeards. These can be a mile wide and 40 feet high and travel more than 25 miles per hour. Rogue waves of 100 plus feet high, or 30 meters, have been reported. And in the Drake Passage, there are no landmasses to offer resistance to the winds and the waves. Thus, they pick up and don't have anything to diminish their ferocity. This weather is found in no place else in the world, the closest equivalent being tropical cyclones. In other words, the Drake Passage was unlike anything most any man or woman had endured. And this was what Shackleton and the James Caird were heading into. And it would not take them long to understand the fury of the passage. This is from Alfred Lansing's Endurance. Quote, once, every 90 seconds or less, the cared sails would go slack as one of these gigantic waves loomed astern, possibly 50 feet above her and threatening, surely, to bury her under a 100 million gallons of water. But then, by some phenomenon of buoyancy, she was lifted higher and higher up the face of the onrushing swell until she found herself, rather unexpectedly, caught in the turmoil of foam at the summit and hurling forward. Over and over again, a thousand times a day, this drama was reenacted." That is insane, and almost beyond imagination. A wave 50 feet high, bearing down on the James Caird, the little boat lifted with the swell, all the way to the top, and then back down as the wave continued onward. And not just once or twice, but a hundred times, a thousand times. Just incredible. And thus, this was the life of the men for several days. It was intense. Sleep was almost impossible, as was using the stove for cooking. The men were constantly on edge, waiting to try and survive the next great swell and it didn't help that the men were living on such a small boat. They couldn't walk around, couldn't stretch, couldn't relax, couldn't exercise. Thus, health issues cropped up quickly. Shackleton suffered from sciatica, pain shooting up and down his lower back and legs, and everyone's limbs, in particular the feet, were numb. The men would remove their boots and find the feet dead white. Now, the one advantage to the crazy waters and winds of the Drake Passage was that the James Caird was moving toward South Georgia Island at a healthy clip. By April 28th, they had covered about a third of the distance to the island. The next day, the temperature began to fall, dropping nearly to zero degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 18 degrees Celsius. The wind, Shackleton believed, was blowing directly off a nearby ice pack, which forces us to remember that the boat was not necessarily clear of the ice. And if the boat got slammed into a chunk of ice, and it didn't have to be that big of a chunk, well, it would get shattered into a thousand pieces. So the next day, April 30th, would bring better weather? Ha! The storms were only getting worse. The men literally never stopped bailing. In fact, they were losing the battle, and the James Caird was taking on more water than they could bail. Shackleton would take down the sails and throw out the sea anchor and try to ride out the storm. A sea anchor, by the way, is a heavy object that sort of drags the boat so that it's not rocking and tossing all over the place. The boat still moves, just not that much and not so dramatically. The Caird would spend the next two days trying to weather the storms. Now the men were constantly chipping off the ice that formed on the boat. At night, in the dark, they couldn't do much, and thus the morning light would show the boat completely coated in ice, some places six inches thick. Each man would work for five or ten minutes, 
that's all they could manage in the wet cold, and use an axe to club and chip away the ice. Another danger was revealed when the water in the bottom of the boat started to freeze. This could be catastrophic as the boat got heavier and heavier, and because it's ice, the men couldn't bail it out. This is the kind of thing that could sink a boat the size of the Caird. Thus, a stove was lit under the deck to help thaw out the water and then pump it out. Another issue that happened was with the men's sleeping bags. The reindeer fur was not meant to stand up to constant salty water, and it was now rotting away. Two of the water-soaked bags, each weighing 40 pounds and falling apart and reeking badly, were simply tossed overboard. This misery would go on for days until, on May 2nd, the sea anchor broke. This caused the boat to suddenly start lurching about. Shackleton ordered one of the sails raised to try and control the carrot. Luckily, by this time, the storms were dying down, and while steering the boat was a monumental task, the James Caird managed to stay on course. Now, I want to point out that, despite all the issues the men faced, there were moments of levity. Frank Worsley told the story of how, during all of the craziness, he went to take the helm from Timothy McCarthy. Worsley was cranky and exhausted. McCarthy, who was known as an internal optimist, greeted Worsley with a big smile and said, quote, It's a grand day, sir. End quote. Worsley said it was hard to be despondent after that, even if he really wanted to. Anyhow, McCarthy's sentiment was not actually that far off. The storms were fading, and later that day the sun would come out. Ah, what a glorious thing, the sun. First, it signaled that they had survived the storm, and second, it gave Frank Worsley a chance to make a reading. And third, it allowed the men relief from the constant stress of the bad weather. They brought out their clothing and sleeping bags and laid them out so they could air out and dry. And the men just got to relish sitting above deck and in the sun. Worsley wrote they were, quote, able to reduce some parts of our clothing from wet to damp, end quote. The men themselves were haggard, their faces were tired and beaten, their beards and hair long and scraggly, and their bodies were deadly white and the skin raw from the cold sea and the salt. They had salt water boils on their hands and feet and buttocks. The good weather and strong winds would last for two days. It allowed the men to recuperate mentally and physically. And then, on May 3rd, Worsley took a reading and announced that they were halfway to South Georgia Island. Everyone's spirits rose at the news. But let's not get too comfy. We know that good weather isn't going to hold. And thus, late on May 4th, the storms returned. Soon the men were again fighting the waves and winds. On the morning of May 5th, just after midnight, Shackleton, who was sitting at the tiller of the boat, looked to the stern and saw a long stretch of brightness on the horizon. He announced to the others that the weather was clearing to the southwest, a good sign. And then there was an odd hiss, followed by a low mounting roar. Shackleton turned around, and it was then that he realized that the brightness to the rear was not the clouds opening up, but an enormous wave coming right towards them. He shouted out a warning, quote, For God's sake, hold on, it's got us, end quote. It was a tidal wave. It is speculated that it formed when a large Antarctic glacier collapsed into the ocean, triggering the wave. The wave would come upon the James Caird in a fast and furious manner. Shackleton said this at the moment, quote, We felt our boat lifted and flung forward like a cork in breaking surf, end quote. The small boat, a tiny speck on this massive phenomenon, rose up with the wave. Higher and higher the Caird went, and then the wave hit them. The boat was engulfed by roaring water, and actually thrown up into the air and out of the water. And then everything slammed down. Water overwhelmed everyone and everything. The men literally did not know if they were capsized or right side up. And then everything was over in an instant, the wave rushing away. The boat was, miraculously, still afloat, and everyone was accounted for. Again, it was a miracle no one had been tossed overboard. After a few moments of stunned silence, the men went about furiously bailing water, which had filled the carrot. There was so much water, it took them two hours to pump it all out. Of this all, Shackleton wrote, quote, During 26 years' experience of the ocean in all its moods, I have never seen a wave so gigantic, end quote. The survival of the massive wave was nothing short of a miracle. I wonder what would have been worse to have been on deck, seeing everything as it came at them, or being below deck in a sleeping bag, and hearing the oncoming roar, and then suddenly being tossed up and down a hundred feet into the air, ballast and gear flying all around you, the boat filling with water. I want to say being above deck was probably better. At least you could prepare for what was coming, even if it was only for a few moments. But who knows, maybe ignorance is better. Anyhow, the aftermath of the great wave seems to have been the last straw. Yes, the men had survived, but they were at a breaking point. Everyone was exhausted and sullen, even Shackleton. There is one story of a small bird flying up to the carrot and flitting around Shackleton. The boss waved his hand at the bird, annoyed. 
Well, the bird kept coming back to Shackleton, who suddenly burst out yelling and cursing and swatting at the pest. It was an uncharacteristic moment of Shackleton losing his cool. And it wasn't just Shackleton who was suffering. John Vincent had rheumatism, which meant chronic pain in the joints. It got so bad he essentially collapsed, and Shackleton said that he ceased acting as a member of the crew. Harry McNish was struggling as well. Worsley and Crean were holding up the best. Crean, in fact, was the guy who showed incredible fortitude during all of this. Author Michael Smith, in his book By Endurance We Conquer, said this of the Irishman, quote, Crean was unbreakable, standing imperturbably against everything the violent forces of nature hurled at him. Almost oblivious to the roaring winds and crashing waves, he could be seen at the tiller puffing on his pipe and singing songs in the Irish language that passed unrecognized by his shipmates. End quote. I love that quote. It demonstrates how important Crean was to the expedition. In fact, I think as we focus on Shackleton and Worsley and Wilde, it's easy to forget about Crean, but the man was indispensable. Anyhow, in addition to the physical and mental struggles facing the men, they would have some bad news at this time. The last of the water casks had been damaged and it sprung a leak. It was only half full, and the water inside was salty, and somehow reindeer hair had gotten into it. The water in the cask was barely usable. Thus, Shackleton would ration water to half a pint a day to each man. That's eight ounces, or a quarter of a liter. That might stretch the water supply to a week, but it would be hard on the men. Also, the food supply was running low, perhaps two weeks' worth. Thus, rations were trimmed back as well. Now, despite all of this, the James Caird was moving northeast, toward South Georgia Island. That day, Worsley made calculations and estimated that they were 90 miles away, or 145 kilometers. But he stressed that his calculations could be off as much as 10 miles, or 16 kilometers. And with that, I want to stop and talk a bit about South Georgia Island and Shackleton's plan for landing there. South Georgia is a long, thin island. It's 106 miles long, or 170 kilometers. The width varies, but it measures no more than 22 miles, or 35 kilometers wide. Mountains run down the entire length of the island, completely separating the two coasts. It essentially has two sides, a southwestern side and a northeastern side. I have put a map of the island on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Anyhow, all the settlements on South Georgia Island are on the northern side. Shackleton's initial plan was to aim for the extreme western tip of South Georgia. Once he hit that, he would then sail the boat along the coast to the northern side of the island and go to one of the settlements. There was one problem here, and that was if your calculations were off, even a little, and you went too far north, you would miss the island entirely. If that happened, you were pretty much dead. The winds and currents would just keep sweeping you northeast, which was 3,000 miles of open ocean to Africa. There was no way a small boat like the Carrot, if it went past South Georgia, could sail back to the island against the prevailing winds and currents. Also, the health of Vincent and McNish was declining. They needed food, a dry place to rest, and most importantly, water. Thus, Shackleton ordered Worsley to target the ship slightly to the south, where you had the entire length of South Georgia's southwesterly coast as a target. By doing this, Shackleton gave himself a lot more leeway with regards to his targeted landing spot. The plan was to go ashore wherever they reached, get water and food, and then continue with the boat around to the other side of the island. That day and the next, the weather brought a hazy mist to the region. By 7 a.m. on May 8th, Worsley estimated that there were 10 to 12 miles from South Georgia. This made the men nervous. There were 10,000-foot-high mountains on the island. Surely they would see them by now. Had Worsley been wrong with his navigation? Had they missed South Georgia? A few hours later, a clump of seaweed was seen. And a little later, a large bird called a cormorant was spotted. The cormorant rarely flew more than 15 miles from land. And then around noon, the fog would break, and McCarthy called out, Land Ho. There, about 10 miles away, was a black cliff. We've done it, said Shackleton. No one else spoke as the men exchanged relieved smiles. A sighting was quickly done, and it was determined that the carrot was only 16 miles from the western tip of South Georgia Island. Frank Worsley's navigation had been nothing short of impeccable. And so the men set sail for the island. They had done it. They felt enormously relieved, as well as proud of their accomplishment. But still, they were not quite there yet. They would sail closer to the island, but were greeted by a dismal scene. The coast was a maze of uncharted reefs and jagged rocks and breaking waves. To add to the problem, a storm was brewing, and darkness was not far off. To try and navigate through the reefs in such conditions was madness. Shackleton decided they would have to stay at sea for another night. Unfortunately, what the men didn't realize was that the storm that was brewing was a doozy. When it struck, it would kick up gale-force winds and waves 40 feet high. 
The sails were lowered, and ballast was shifted around to keep the boat from being dragged toward the coastline. The men couldn't eat due to the storm, and their water was nearly gone, so their lips were cracked and bleeding. Three men would man the pump, while another bailed water. It got so bad, the swells of the ocean threatened to pull the boat toward the rocks and cliff walls. This would go on all night and into the next day. In his logbook, Frank Worsley wrote, quote, Mountainous westerly gale and swell, wind rose to hurricane force, end quote. Yes, this was a hurricane. It was so fierce, to the north of South Georgia, a 500-ton steamship was lost with all hands in the same storm. The hurricane would batter the James Caird for nine hours. The men had to bail constantly. The worst part of it was their thirst, as their drinking water was now gone. The storm continually threatened to pull the Caird into the reefs. Shackleton wrote, quote, I think most of us felt that the end was very near, end quote. Frank Worsley would echo those words about these terrible hours. He thought they were all going to die. Interestingly, it was not dying that bothered him most. He said if they did die, he would be disappointed that no one would know about all they had endured to get them to this spot. So the perils would continue for the James Caird, including almost getting thrown into a rocky place called Anankov Island. However, once the beleaguered little boat cleared the island, the weather calmed, and the Caird was able to push further out to sea, away from danger. When the weather settled that afternoon, Shackleton sent sail for a place called King Hawken Bay. As they got near the coast, the sails were struck. With Shackleton at the tiller, they made several attempts to run through the reefs, but the winds thwarted them each time, throwing the Caird back out to sea. This took several hours, and as the light began to wane, Shackleton and the men were desperate. Exhausted and out of water, they doubted they could survive another night at sea. Shackleton would make another attempt. With the sails all out, the little boat pushed through the breakers and slipped through a narrow opening in the reefs. They had done it. Once past the reefs, the sails were dropped and the oars brought out. Shackleton set course for a small cove, which was located at the entrance to King Hawken Bay. There would be one more reef in their path, but the carriage would just clear it, the men lifting their oars out of the water to prevent scrapping against it. Once over the reef, the boat was only 600 feet, or 180 meters, from a steep, bouldered beach. They pushed forward. At 5 p.m., May 10, 1916, the keel of the James Caird scraped against the rocks, and Shackleton jumped out, the rest of the men following. They were back on South Georgia Island, having left 522 days before. The first thing the men did was rush to a stream of fresh water running down from the higher-up glaciers. I cannot imagine the feeling of that moment. Now, despite the exhilaration of reaching land, this journey is not done. The men still had to reach a settlement and get a rescue boat to Elephant Island, but first things first. The men were understandably exhausted. They unloaded the boat, and a shelter was set up in a little overhang, and a hot meal was prepared. The men tried to pull the boat higher onto the beach, but they didn't have the strength, and they abandoned the attempt. Thus, it was tied down. Also, it was discovered that the rudder had been torn off the carrot when she came ashore. It was nowhere to be found. With everything as secure as possible, the men went to sleep. A lookout was set to watch over the James Caird, so it wasn't pulled into the ocean by the tide or a wave. And that is exactly what would happen at around 2 a.m. The men were woken by a shout from Tom Crean. They would rush down to the beach and find the Caird pulled into the water, and Crean nearly head deep in the surf, hanging on to a rope trying to keep the boat from being swept away. It was a struggle, but the Caird and Crean would be dragged back to the beach. The men then rolled the boat over to help prevent it from happening again. Despite that precaution, Shackleton ordered all the men to sit and keep watch over the boat until dawn. Now, as a reminder, the plan had been to sail the boat to the other side of the island. However, the loss of the rudder would force Shackleton to change his plans again. As a note, Shackleton was never afraid to change his plans depending on the situation. At times it hampered him, but in a difficult and uncertain situation, it was a strength it allowed him to adapt to situations that required nimble thinking and actions. Anyhow, Shackleton's new plan was rather audacious. Instead of sailing to the other side of the island, a 150-mile or 240-kilometer ocean voyage, they would walk there. The hike over the mountains was only about 30 miles or 48 kilometers. That's like one-fifth the distance. What's not to like about that? Well, how about the word mountains? Yes, Shackleton wanted to climb over mountains, some that reached upwards of 10,000 feet. And these were not easy, gradually rising mountains. These were jagged, sawtooth peaks, described as impassable by many. Three-quarters of South Georgia, by the way, is covered in glaciers, snowfields, and ice. And the higher you go up, the more severe the weather is going to be. And did Shackleton have a route? Why, no, because no one had ever done this before in the annals of human history. Sort of like taking a boat from Antarctica to South Georgia Island. 
Anyhow, the plan went as follows. After a few days of recuperating, the men would dismantle the sides and decking of the James Caird to lighten her and sail her deeper into King Hawkins Bay, where the train was better for a crossing. Shackleton and his crew would thus rest for several days. One of the simplest joys they had was to be able to lay out in the grass under the sun. A few albatrosses were killed to provide food, and there was plenty of water from the glaciers. One issue that Shackleton faced was the loss of the rudder. He would ask McNish to fashion a replacement, but before that could happen, the Carrot's old rudder would wash up on shore on May 13th. It was some good luck for a change. Despite the return of the rudder, Shackleton did not alter his plans. Trying to sail around the island was just too overwhelming of a proposition. And thus the James Caird would sail out of the little cove on the morning of May 15th. The weather was good, and the voyage up the fjord was only about 8 miles or 13 kilometers. It was accomplished without incident. By noon, they had reached a large beach filled with elephant seals. Food was not going to be an issue. The boat was turned over so the men could make a shelter. Shackleton was anxious to get going, but the weather turned bad, forcing the men to wait. The plan was for three of the men to make the mountain crossing. John Vincent could not do to the chronic pain of his rheumatism, and Harry McNish was not very well either. Of the rest of the men, McCarthy was the most run down, meaning he would stay and tend to Vincent and McNish. That meant that the climbing team would be Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean. None of them had any mountaineering experience. They had no gear for such a thing, and their winter clothing was in bad shape. McNish tried to make a sledge for the men to pull, but it proved to be unwieldy. Instead, Shackleton decided to travel light. Once they left the beach, they would not stop. They would carry with them three days of sledging rations and some biscuits, along with one of the Primus stoves and fuel for cooking in hot milk. They also brought two compasses, a pair of binoculars, 50 feet of rope, and a carpenter's adze to be used as an ice axe. An adze is similar to an axe, but with a cutting edge perpendicular to the handle rather than parallel. There would be no tent, no sleeping bags. They would go until they dropped. The men in the camp had the shotgun plus 50 cartridges so they could survive on seal meat for quite a while. And so that, my friends, is where we are going to leave things for today. Ernest Shackleton had just crossed one of the most dangerous stretches of water in the world in a 22-foot boat. It had been a remarkable deed. Of the accomplishment, historian Carolyn Alexander would say, quote, The voyage of the James Caird would be ranked as one of the greatest boat voyages ever accomplished. End quote. And you know what? I really can't say much more than that. I cannot think of any small boat journey that equals the voyage of the James Caird. It was incredible. Kudos to Worsley for his navigation. But we are not done with our story. Ernest Shackleton still had to get to civilization if he was going to rescue his comrades on the other side of the island, plus the men on Elephant Island. And to do so, he was going to have to cross a dangerous mountain range that no one in history had ever crossed. They had inadequate clothing and equipment. They did not have a tent or sleeping bags. They were still obviously exhausted from the recent ocean ordeal. And winter was not far off. For Ernest Shackleton, it was just one more obstacle to overcome. So that is it, the 100th episode of the Explorers podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of this amazing journey. Join me next time as we wrap up the story of Ernest Shackleton and the Endurance Expedition. Please take care. I will see you next time.